Testing one, two, one, two. Before we begin with the uh, study for today, uh, we want to have a word of prayer uh, together. So I invite you to uh, bow your, your hearts with me now. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray humbly, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to be very present as we, uh, we search for the truth. We ask the Holy Spirit to guide us to the truth, especially on this topic of who and what the church is. It's a very important topic to understand. We wish to be uh, not only written in the book of life, Lord, but to remain written in that book and to be members of your kingdom, thus your church. We wish to be organized for service. And as we study these things out, Lord, I pray that you be with those who are, are watching and who are listening, and that they will be led to the truth and come to a right understanding of where they are and where they need to be. And Father, give me the words to speak. Bring thoughts to my mind you wish conveyed. We thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day, and especially for Jesus, uh, our spiritual rest and our physical rest on this holy day is all because of him. We pray, Lord, that you forgive us our sins. We claim his blood that was shed at Calvary. And Lord, bless us as you've promised, not because we're worthy in any way. Quite the contrary. But Jesus is. And we ask this in his name. Amen. The subject of whom and what is the church is an exceedingly important subject. And I will tell you that the most wonderful privilege any human being can have is to belong uh, to God's church. Recognizing the church of God has eternal ramifications, friends. And so we must rely upon the Holy Spirit uh, for discernment and, and not uh, man, not your ministers, not your, your pastors, uh, we must rely upon God and His Word uh, to, uh, 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 to describe and define for us who He is, thus who is His church. Now we learn in our first study, which I entitled, In My Name, uh, that we must find the true Jesus if we want to be in the true church. You see, there is a true Christ and there is a false Christ and Jesus warned us about false Christs as you re may recall in the Gospels and in particular um, you know Matthew 24 Luke chapter 21 you see where Jesus warned about false Christs we don't want to follow a false Christ we want to find the true Jesus and when we do we will find the true church now the true Jesus was born with a fallen nature like our own Yet he overcame sin by the power of God, which is available through Christ to all who wish to be saved. It's a free gift. Jesus himself has said this. We learned that the name of Jesus means Jehovah saves. And he does this by changing our name to his. Now it's not just a, uh, a forensic change of name. Like uh, when a, uh, a wife uh, takes the name of her husband. It's much more than that. His name actually has a sanctifying power to it. You see, 
His name means that God saves. He does this. He saves us. And by saving us, our name becomes His. You see, He gives us power to overcome temptation and sin. Thus, He saves us from sin and not in our sin. This is something that we learned the last time we were together. We learned that when we come together in His name, it means that we are one in spirit and in truth. And Christ abides in our hearts, making us a member of the true church of God and not a member of the Antichrist church. Friends, any church organization that professes that Jesus did not come in the same fallen flesh that we have is not part of the church of God, but is a member of the church Antichrist. This is what the Bible teaches. John tells us that very clearly. We learned that the presence of Christ, this was in our last lesson, we, we learned that the presence of Christ can alone constitute a church. You see, wherever Jesus abides, there is His church. And so we want to follow the right Jesus. We want to know who the right Jesus is. Follow Him, we will be a member of the church. Now there are many churches and religious uh, organizations that claim uh, to be God's church. There are a number who claim to be the remnant church. Who is right? And this is something we got to discover. Who's right? Can there be more than one church? Can there be more than one spiritual house? Which is what I've entitled this study. A spiritual house. Well, we read in Ephesians chapter 4, and verses 4 to 6, there is one body. You get that? There's one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There isn't all kinds of different types of baptisms. There's one, friends. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is what Paul was telling us. In 1 Timothy 3.15, uh, it speaks about the church of the living God when it says the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then we discover that in John 14, 6, Jesus himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Uh, friends, don't listen to these false uh, shepherds out there. Um, you know, uh, uh, Joel Osteen says, oh no, there's, there's more than one way to God. No, friends. Jesus himself said, no man come unto the Father but by me. It's only through Jesus Christ that you can gain entrance into the family of God. So, you see, no one can be a member of the body of Christ. Remember, we just read what Paul said about there's one body. Nobody can be a member of that one body unless they become a very part of the truth, which Jesus says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and He is the truth. You see, you have to become a very uh, part of Christ Himself in order uh, to be a member of the body or the church. Not just knowing the truth, friends. Not just knowing it, but letting the truth sanctify the life is how one becomes a very part of it. You see, we, we have the, uh, those who profess 
uh, to be members of the body, but they don't live as Christ lives, as Christ would have us to live by grace and faith and exercising faith. They profess, they may have the knowledge, the mental assent, you see, uh, but that's a, uh, and knowledge is important, <laughs> so don't get me wrong. We, we uh, uh, you know, the Bible says that uh, God himself said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We have to have the knowledge, but that knowledge can't just be in our head. It has to be sanctifying us uh, through the grace of Christ. You know, many people uh, uh, know about Jesus that are not being saved by Jesus every day. They're not becoming a part of Jesus, you see. He's the one who saves us. As Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 23, he says, Christ is the head of the church. So you see, wherever the truth is, there is where Jesus is. Jesus is the head of the church, so wherever Jesus is, that's his church, you see. So we've got to find who is this true Jesus and not the false Christ. You know, as it says there, Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. And friends, when you, when you start to study the words of Jesus, it doesn't matter if it's a, a Sermon on the Mount and you go through, you can see him discussing what he's trying to, to, to convey to us is how to become a member of the kingdom of God, how to become a member of the true church, which on this earth at this time is what is referred to often as the church militant because uh, it's a church that has... Uh, the weed of God, the lambs of God, and the tares, the foolish virgins, but it's not to have open sinners. If there's a church organization that has open sinners, it is not God's church. God's church deals with open sinners. Open sinners are not the same as tares. They're not the same as foolish virgins. We have to get that straight. And we'll talk about that and study that in, in coming lessons, but I uh, don't want you to get confused here. And many people are. Satan has pulled the wool over our eyes, friends. We need to ask for spiritual discernment. In the book, Upward Look, page 315, we're told uh, the final and absolutely definitive, I believe, statement on God's true church. Upward Look, page 315, says, Where Christ is, see, even among the humble few, this is Christ's church. For the presence of the high and holy one who inhabiteth eternity can alone constitute a church. So wherever Jesus is, that's where his church is. That's why it's so important for us uh, to be able to, to clearly see and discern false, all the false Christs from the true Christ. You see, the presence of Jesus is the foundational description of his church. And this has always been true. Since the very beginning of time, this has been the case. You know, Adam and Eve understood and believed this. Enoch understood and believed this, and Enoch walked with God. See? He understood and believed this. He didn't just have the mental ascent. Abraham understood it. He believed this. Isaac understood and believed. Jacob finally understood and believed this and was then called Israel, which means a prince with God. After 400 years in Egypt, 
Israel's descendants forgot this truth. But God wanted, my friends, to remind them that it was His presence that was holy and what defined His church. It wasn't just having a name written on paper. It says in Exodus 25 and verse 8, and this is God speaking, He said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And according to this verse, what was the reason that the, 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 the temple or the, the sanctuary was built? What was the reason God wanted that? It was a dwelling place for God. And what was it that made this building a holy place? It was God's presence. Wasn't it? Any place where God presides is a holy place. When God met Moses at the burning bush, God told Moses to take off uh, his shoes because the place he was standing on was holy ground. Isn't that what we read? Moses had been walking all around there, that place, for 40 years. 40 years. Why was it holy ground now? I mean, it wasn't for 40 years, and now all of a sudden it's holy ground. Because God was now in that place. It is the presence of God that made the sanctuary or, or the temple holy. It's the presence of God. You know, many years later, Solomon's temple was built. It was a much larger structure, more permanent. But the thing that made that a holy place was because the glory of God came into it. You read about it in, in uh, you know, different places, Chronicles, but we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse 10, it says, And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. God came into that building and the priests weren't able to go into it because of the glory that was manifested there by God, by God's presence. And this temple, this sanctuary, was a symbol of the presence of God that was among, that He was among His people, you see. But you know, sad to say, that God's people back then had the same problems that God's people have today. The very same problems. They understood so often only in terms of what they could see with their eyes. Just what they could see with their eyes. So, you, you know, the, the Hebrews saw this wonderful and glorious temple. And the symbol came to be the all-important thing in their minds. What that temple represented was the all-important thing to them. And what was symbolized was the most important thing in their life. It was not the gold. It was not the expensive tapestry. It was not even the gold that covered uh, uh, the box with the law of God inside it. That in itself was still, you see, just a symbol. What? And speaking of that, what was that a symbol of? 
in Signs of the Times, uh, June 3rd, 1886. Notice what we read. It says, Here was the Ark of the Covenant containing the tables of the law. The Ark which was to Israel the symbol of the divine presence and the pledge of victory in battle. So, what's the prophet say it was a symbol of? This, this box, <laughs> this Ark of the Covenant, what was it a symbol of? She says it was a symbol of the divine presence. Well, let me ask you, um, and I know you're all Bible students, and you've read... Uh, uh, you know, you've read a great portion of the Bible, I'm sure. Do you remember what Hophni and Phineas, you know, the sons of Eli, you know what they did one time? Do you remember? They got to thinking so much of that symbol, that symbol, that, that Ark of the Covenant. Remember we talked about it uh, before, that we're to keep the Ark, but it's to be kept in our hearts. <laughs> See? It's to have that sanctifying power in our hearts. But they, they were looking at the symbol of it. And, and the symbol said that they had the divine presence, that they had God in this box, you see. And they said to themselves, we're going to take the ark out to battle. And we're going to win the battle. Because God's with us, because we have the box. And God's in the box. By the way, should, should we win the battle if the ark of God is among us? Remember, what was the ark uh, a pledge of? She said it was a pledge of victory in battle, right? But it was a symbol of the presence of God, see? If you had the actual uh, presence of God with you, if you keep the ark, friends, in your heart, are you going to have victory in battle? Yes, you are. The Bible conveys it over and over, that you will have victory in battle. Jonathan, you recall, and his armor bearer attacked the Philistines. They had, uh, uh, they just had those two. It was Jonathan and his armor bearer. But they had the presence of God with them. And they won a great victory. Uh, another example, you know, Gideon and his 300 attacked a 120,000 man army. But the presence of God was with them. Those 300. Did they win a victory? Can you ever lose if uh, the presence of God is with you? <laughs> no, friends, you cannot. But see, what happened was, Hophni and Phinehas thought that if you had the symbol, automatically you would have victory. But did it happen? Did they win when they, when they did that? No, they did not. They lost. See, they had the same trouble we have today, friends. And it's very disheartening. But they have the same problem we have today. They took the symbol and they thought that was the reality. No matter their standing with God. They believed that God was in the box. And all they had to do was carry the box around and display God to their enemies and they would conquer them. You know, kind of like a genie. God would come forth, defeat their enemies whenever the lamp was rubbed. That's, that's, you know, that's what they thought. They believed that with their whole hearts. And people do this all the time. They do it all the time. They have God in a box and they carry it around thinking that all they have to do is have that box with them. 
Now, it's represented in many different ways today. You know, it may be a cross. I see people wear cross necklaces or it's hanging from the rearview mirror. They have a bumper sticker of a cross or whatever it may be. It may be a rosary. It may be, you know, a prayer scarf. You know, <laughs> these uh, different ministries out there, they send out all these different things saying, oh, anointed with holy water and all these things, you know. Um, but it could also be a temple. It could also be a church. It could also be a denomination. And, and they believe they have special spiritual power because God is in their particular box, whatever that box may be. It's the symbol, you see. Watch out now. I'll open my box and God will unleash all His power upon you. He's my own genie in a lamp, and as long as I have that lamp, I'll have victory. You see, the symbol has become God, and thus the true God has been replaced with an idol. And I'll ask you, can a cross necklace or a rosary or a prayer scarf, a temple, a church, or a denomination become an idol? Absolutely. What about a name? Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, you can't, uh, you can't use any other name. You see, that name has become an idol to so many Adventists. It's unbelievable. And sad to say, friends, but this, is, this kind of thinking, this kind of attitude, this kind of belief is nothing new. God's people have had trouble with this form of spiritualism for thousands of years. They had the same trouble after they came out of Egypt. Camped right there at the base of Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 32. Look at verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, get up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf, which is a major false god symbol uh, in Egypt. And he fashioned it. They made this gold molten calf. And then they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to who? To the Lord. You see, the symbol was their God. But they were saying that this symbol was a... This, this golden calf was a symbol of the Creator God. As he said, a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And friends, I'll tell you, if you do a study on that, rose up to play. Um, they had, and, and we've studied it before, I pre have presented it before, in, in the series about uh, the language of music. And they had this, this noise of war, I think I called that particular study. And, and uh, um, this music was 
had the same backbeats that you hear today in rock and pop and almost all kinds of music. And it stirs the emotions and they were having orgies, <laughs> friends, and raping the women. They rose up to play. And all kinds of lasciviousness. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. A stubborn people. Aren't we stubborn still today? We get an invitation from the King of glory to be a member of His family and we fight against it. We rebel against an invitation. In fact, He sent His Son and we killed Him. Aren't we a stiff-necked people? But we read here the people had Aaron make a symbol for God. And in this case, it was a golden calf. And that symbol became their God. <laughs> like I said, what a bunch of stiff-necked or stubborn people we are. Today, millions of Christians have these symbols and that's their God. But you see, it's nothing new. They had the same trouble in Jeremiah's time. If you turn your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 4 to 8. In Jeremiah 7, verses 4 to 8. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. You see, this is a conditional promise God's giving to His people. Verse 8 says, Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. And then, as you continue to read, he, he lists some more things that they were doing. Some more sins that they were committing. You know, but they said, you know, it's alright. It's not as bad as you're saying. It's alright because the temple's here. And so God's here. So we're going to be alright. Remember the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. We have the temple of the Lord. We have the name. We're the remnant. We have the church. We have the schools. We have... So we're okay. God's here. We're going to be all right. You know, that's what Hophni and Phinehas said. The ark's here, so we're going to win. As long as we have the box, we're okay. We'll have victory. This is what I'm saying. You know, friends, it's not just the majority of Christians in the world that think this way. 
also the vast majority of Seventh-day Adventists think this way. They think that if you have these symbols, then naturally you're going to have the reality. But having the symbol does no good if you do not have the reality. And that's the deception, see. You can read, you can read that right there in Jeremiah 7. The first 15 verses, you can read it. It talks about the experience in Shiloh, you see. And that's where Hophni and Phinehas were. Now, in Shiloh, which was in the tribe of Ephraim, the center of God's worship had been in Shiloh for 300 years. 300 years. You know, 300 years is longer than the United States has been in existence as a nation. It's a long time. They thought that the worship of God was going to go on in Shiloh forever. But it didn't. And the Lord told the people in Jerusalem, the same thing I did to Shiloh, I'm going to do to you if you don't repent and change your ways. Come back to me. And did he do it? Yes, he did. You see, the people were looking at the symbol. And that became the all-important thing. But they didn't have what it symbolized. And they thought that religion consisted, you see, in the, uh, offering sacrifices and going through ceremonies and worshiping at the temple and having these priests go in and sprinkle the blood and going through all this ceremony. That's what they thought true religion was. But no, friends, all of that was a symbol of true religion. You know, Paul makes it very clear in the book of Hebrews that, that all of that was symbolic. And if you don't have what is symbolized, then, friends, your religion is worth nothing. So do you know what God did to teach them that? Not only was the temple destroyed, friends, they had no feast days, they had no sacrifices, no day of atonement, no temple or anything. The whole symbolic system was just completely destroyed in Jeremiah's time. And the people were taken captive by Babylon. And so, of course, some people thought there was no more religion because the symbol was what their religion was and now that symbol was gone. They had mistaken the symbol with what it symbolized. But there was a remnant of people who understood the symbol and they continued to worship God. A remnant like Daniel and his friends understood even though they were captives in Babylon. Now, they were captive for 70 years. Now when you study this, you'd naturally think that if a nation or a group of people went through an experience as bad as the Jews went through in Jeremiah's time, that they would get that lesson figured out, wouldn't you? You would think they would learn that lesson. That, oh, we, we, had, we had been worshiping idols, thinking it was God. We'd been worshiping the symbols. You'd think they would get that figured out. You'd think that they would now understand that the temple is a symbol of something. That these services are a symbol of something and you must have the reality that is symbolized if your religion is going to mean anything. You'd think they would have that figured out. Let me ask you something. Could you still have the reality when the temple and all that was gone? Could you? 
was there, let me ask you this way, was there true religion in Daniel's life when all that was gone? Sure there was. You can still have everything that was symbolized in the temple, you see. You could have it all, even though the symbols were gone. Can you still have true religion, though you don't have your name on the church books? Absolutely you can. Can you have, I'm talking about the local church books, membership. Can you have it even though you cannot legally call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist? Oh boy, there's some Adventists say, no way. If you can't call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist, you're not a member of the church. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Or have they made the name Seventh-day Adventist a symbol for God? Think it through, friends. People had to learn, you see, to get their attention focused on something other than what you can see, what you can hear, what building you attend, what pew you sit on, what organization you belong or don't belong to, what church, what name you use, etc. But when Israel went back and, they, and built the temple again a few hundred years later, you know, they had the very same problem that they had before. And so we see Jesus talking about this problem. He's talking about it in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to go there in a moment. Let me ask you, what is it? What is it that makes a temple a temple or a church a church? Remember what we've been studying, what inspiration said. What is it that makes a temple a temple or a church a church? It is the presence of God. What is it that makes this place right here, where we are, a holy place? It is that the, the presence of God is here. The Holy Spirit is here. And you see, if the Holy Spirit is not here, if the presence of God is not here, because of sin and wickedness, because of apostasy from the truth, which is apostasy from Jesus, you see, for he himself declares he is the truth, then you're just going through the motions. You're following a religion built with men's hands and not the hand of God. You are uh, uh, worshiping the symbols. So one uh, person had said one time, I heard him say, you're just playing church. Friends, you're not in the true church of God, though to the outward appearance it may look like you are because you have the symbol. And you can have all the symbols and all the ceremonies and all the rituals and everything that some people think is religion and it will cost you your eternal life because it is void of the presence of God. It is void of the life giver. It is the symbol and not the reality. There are over 200, friends, well over 200 Christian denominations. And each one, I am telling you, each, in each one the majority worships their denomination as if it were the presence of God. They worship their organization as if it was God. 
They've turned their organization into a molten calf. Friends, I'll tell you, the church of God is to be organized for service, but the organization itself is not the church of God. The symbol is not the reality. It's just a symbol of what the reality is to be. You can still have the symbol, but if God's not there, that's all you will have, friends, a symbol, and you'll be worshiping an idol. Beloved, I encourage you, you need to study this out. Take what I'm saying. Search it out. You know, if you follow the apostles' record, you'll find that they went about raising and organizing converts for service. Okay? Never. You'll never find this. Never did they organize converts and declare that their, their organization was God. And as I said, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 23. If we go there, Matthew 23. Look what Jesus says about it. Verse two, uh, chapter 23, verse 16. He says, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it's nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. What's Jesus saying here? What's he saying? What is it that makes this building important? Is it the gold? Absolutely not. It is the presence of God in that building that makes it a holy place. That is what makes it a temple, a spiritual house. What makes it a church? It is the presence of God inside. Now, in coming lessons, I'm going to define there are a few different definitions of, for the English word church. We're going to get into that. But I'm talking about God's true church. Remember the context, what we're studying here. It is the presence of God that makes that organization, that makes that temple, that makes that a church, a spiritual house. Remember Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and he said something very interesting. And it gives us insight into what a what is a spiritual house? We find it in John chapter 4, verse 23. He says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers, okay, when he says true worshipers, that implies that there are false worshipers, correct? He says, Then the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And friends, we could get into a study about what is true worship. You know, some people think that worshiping God is just defined by being at church. But friends, we worship God in our life every day. We're supposed to. It's not just limited to praying and speaking to God in prayer or into studying His Word, but in the way we live. Are we living in the Spirit 
and by the truth of God. That here Jesus was laying out a difference between the true worshipers and those who only profess to be true worshipers. And Jesus said the true worshipers were those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And, and, and that is in, in all sincerity, you see, with the, the highest faculties of the mind and the emotions and applying the principles of truth to our heart so it changes our life. That's what Jesus is talking about in spirit and in truth. That's genuine worship, friends. And Jesus says all else is false. There are so many people today that just show up to church and sit in the pew and sing and give their offering and, and pat themselves on the back and say, I've done my duty for the week and go out and they, 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 they uh, covet their neighbor's wife and they steal from their boss and they uh, disrespect their parents and, and they think God blesses that because they went to church, because their name's on a membership roll. That's not worship. That's a false worship. That's worshiping Antichrist, friends. Remember, anywhere that God presides is holy and God is spirit, Jesus said. Anywhere that God presides is a spiritual house. And wherever He presides, that is His church. Remember what we read earlier when we started this study? 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul told Timothy the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus is the truth. And those who are true worshipers will have Jesus abiding in their hearts, which will manifest itself spiritually. They will learn, live, and worship in spirit and in truth. You will see it in their life. You will know that there's something about that person that's different than every other person you've come into contact with. Because they see Jesus in them. And this is what we need to understand. This is, one, this is a fundamental of who and what the church is. And those who have the abiding presence of Jesus in their heart are members of His church. No matter where they may be physically, they are members of His church. Because Jesus is alive in them. As Jesus said, I in them and they in me. And the church is a spiritual house because God is spirit and wherever He presides, there is His church. And His church is made of living stone. And it is not a lifeless building made of cold, dead stone and bricks hewed by the hands of men. That's just the symbol. Remember, Jesus said to Peter that, that he was going to start building his church upon a rock. Not a pebble or a little stone, but a solid and sure foundation. As we read in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock, speaking of himself, this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We talk about evangelism and the Church is to be organized for service. When the church is organized according to gospel order and God's principles, with the Spirit living within it, and we living as we should in Christ, we will be active and the devil can't do a thing.
He puts up these gates to try to stop the work of God and it does not prevail, friends. Jesus said He's the rock and He's going to build His church on Himself, the pillar and ground of the truth. You know, friends, with a maintenance and carpentry background, I've had the opportunity to work in several buildings. I mean, over you know thirty some years, and uh, I've worked in homes. I've actually helped to build a few. Um, and if you don't start with a, a sure and a and a and a solid foundation, one that's solid, one that's square, <laughs> you know, your building's not going to last. But what's going to happen, it's going to be fraught with all kinds of trouble. It's going to have weaknesses. And over time, those weaknesses will be exploited. I've been in some very uh, old homes. And one thing that's been consistent in the older homes that are still standing today is that the foundation was very solid. It was very sound. Whoever built that home or you know, at least built that foundation knew what they were doing. They built it correctly. And so, friends, it is just as important for this spiritual church to have a solid foundation as our home does. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, the Lord says, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. It says tried stone. You know, sometimes stones... You can look at it with the eye and it looks okay, but it may have a vein, uh, and, and stones do have veins in them. You know. It may have a vein running in it, and as it gets uh, put to the test, it, there'll be a weak spot in that vein, and it'll, it'll crack, it'll break. But God's saying a tried stone, one that can stand the pressure, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And Paul in his letter to the Corinthians said, Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 You see, friends, men cannot lay the foundation, for it is spiritual, and the spiritual originates with God. So we can't build the church on our own selves as a foundation. Jesus is the head of the church. Remember we read that? Jesus himself said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Speaking of himself. We cannot, men cannot lay the foundation. It's spiritual. Spiritual originates with God. Our Savior said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, He said, Why and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He's like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. You see, the spiritual house is founded upon Christ and His Word, the solid rock. When we hear what He says and we obey what He says, we become a part of the spiritual house that has a sure and solid foundation, which is Christ.
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That cornerstone had to be very strong, friends. It has to be very sound because it holds those two walls which holds the rest of the house together. But the Jews at the time of Christ were blind to the reality of the symbol. They believed that the temple was what constituted the presence of God. They failed to realize that it was the presence of God that constituted the true temple. And few at that time could see that the rock was symbolic of Christ. And many are still blinded by this same deception today. Even within Adventism. Deuteronomy 32 verse 3 it says, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. You skip down to verse 18, it says, Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful and hast forgotten God that formed thee. We believe that the rock itself is God and not a symbol of Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 2 verse 2 says, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. See, if you don't understand the symbols, you think he's talking about a literal rock. And the Bible doesn't only call Christ the rock, he's also called the tried stone. Psalms 118 and verse 21 says, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the rock, but the rock's a symbol, friends. The rock's a symbol of Jesus. The temple is a symbol of the true God. The temple isn't God. It's just a symbol. It's a symbol of a spiritual house if God is there. Let me share this with you from the book Desire of Ages, page 491. The church is built upon Christ as its foundation. It is to obey Christ as its head. It is not to depend upon men or be controlled by men. Get that? It's not to be controlled by men. Many claim that a position of trust in the church gives them authority to dictate what other men shall believe and what they shall do. This claim God does not sanction. The Savior declares, All ye are brethren. All are exposed to temptation and are liable to err. Upon no finite being can we depend for guidance. The rock of faith is the living presence of Christ in the church. Upon this the weakest may depend, and those who think themselves the strongest will prove to be the weakest unless they make Christ their efficiency. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. The Lord is the rock. His work is perfect. Blessed are they that put their trust in Him. 
The Apostle Peter, in speaking of the Lord's church as a spiritual house, says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, he says, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. These sacrifices are not animal flesh, friends, as in the Levitical priesthood. But as expressed by Paul in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. David plainly states that the sacrifice that is acceptable with God uh, in Psalms 51, verse 16, he, he is stating here, uh, For thou desirest not sacrifice, speaking of the animal sacrifices, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So you see, he's plainly stating the sacrifice that is acceptable with God is a broken and contrite heart. In the building of this spiritual house mentioned by the Apostle Peter, the people of God composing the structure are represented as lively or, um, he says, living stones cut out with the hand of God and not the hand of men. You see, you can try to change your life. And some people can just by sheer willpower make changes, but you cannot be sanctified by yourself. You cannot make yourself holy. You cannot really deep down, without God in your heart, all the motivations that, that are pushing you to do these things are motivated from selfish reasons, from self. Only a selfless God, the Creator God, can change us. You see, living stones cut out with the hand of God, not the hand of man. What a work to be accomplished in these stones, friends, quarried from the rock of the enemy before they can be fitly called the lively stones in God's house. In Isaiah 51.1, we're exhorted to look unto the rock when she are hewn and to the hole of the pit when she are digged. Where we came from, how we're cut, from a devotional book entitled Our High Calling, page 165. The Jewish temple was built of hewn stones quarried out of the mountains, and every stone was fitted for its place in the temple, hewn, polished, and tested before it was brought to Jerusalem. And when all were brought to the, uh, uh, to the ground, the building went together without the sound of an axe or hammer. This building represents God's spiritual temple, which is composed of material gathered out of every nation and tongue and people, of all grades, high and low, rich and poor, learned and unlearned. You see, we can't take the, uh, the, the uh, axe and the hammer and change ourselves. See, that's being done by God. And then God brings us together and builds His temple. She goes on, she says, 
These are not dead substances to be fitted by hammer and chisel. They are living stones quarried out from the world by the truth. And the great master builder, the Lord of the temple, is now hewing and polishing them and fitting them for their respective places in the spiritual temple. When completed, this temple will be perfect in all its parts. The admiration of angels and of men for its builder and maker is God. God is building His church, friends, and it is a spiritual structure. The church of God is a spiritual house where God presides. He presides there through His people who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, don't misunderstand me. Please, do not misunderstand me. There is to be organization and a physical presence in this world. And like I said, I'm going to get to that in later studies talk about the church militant, we're talking about organization. But the foundation of the church is a spiritual foundation. It's to be the pillar and ground of the truth. The head is Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. And we're to be lively stones because we have the life giver living in us. The Jews rejected the stone that was the cornerstone of the foundation. But they kept the stone tablets that symbolized the character of Christ. They kept the symbol, you see, friends, and they rejected the true. Thus, they lost the presence of God. They lost the character of God. They refused to be spiritual, a combination of humanity and divinity, being born again. No, you know, they, they said, we have the law and the prophets. We are the depositaries of the law of God in the spirit of prophecy. We have the name we trademarked it. It's ours. We have the buildings. We have the temple, and therefore we have the presence and power of God. We are the chosen ones. We have God in our box. But you see, friends, they chose the human over the divine. They chose the physical house over the spiritual house. And Jesus went on there in Matthew 23. Verse 37, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, Till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name, in the name of the Lord. Jesus said this, but let me tell you, friends, their house was still a house. Their temple was still a temple. Their church was still a church. Their denomination was still a denomination. But it was no longer God's house. It was no longer God's temple. It was no longer God's church. It was no longer God's denomination for God had departed. Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Ye shall not see me henceforth. And without God, friends, there is no chance to become like Christ, to partake of the divine nature, to become a combination of humanity and divinity. 
If you go to such a place that is desolate of God, you're going to be led to hell. Not to eternal life. Well, there's some good people here and I'm trying to reach these people. That's a deception. God calls you out from apostasy. He calls you out to separate. You're not going to see Him henceforth. That's what Jesus said. Your house is left unto you desolate. Ye shall not see Me. Without God present, there's only the resulting Antichrist church left, friends. No matter the denomination. No matter the sacred name. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because it's not sacred. You can have the tablets of stone. You can have the writings of the prophets. You can have the testimonies for the church. You can have the buildings, the hospitals, the schools, and the name and still be left desolate. You see, without Christ present, you're left with something made by the hands of men. You have a church, but, you have, but you're not the church of God. You're the church of Antichrist. Very interesting, in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a great image that was made out of you know, several different metals, each metal inferior to the one before it. It started with a, a head of gold, and then it went to silver, then to bronze, then to, to iron, and finally the feet there, it was iron mixed with a miry clay. And if you studied a, a prophecy, you know that these metals represented kingdoms that would reign from Daniel's time to the the end of time, which is where we're living. These were kingdoms of men and not God, for as the dream progressed, the king saw something remarkable. And Daniel reveals this in verse 34, Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. He says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. A stone that was cut out without hands destroys the image. That means men did not cut out this stone. And Daniel gave the interpretation of verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This kingdom has a superhuman origin, for it is to be founded, not by the hands of man, friends, but by the mighty hand of God. Jesus, the rock of our salvation, said that He will build His spiritual house with lively stones, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Oh, beloved, we must take our eyes off the symbols and look to the true, for it's here with us. We must partake of the divine nature if we are to be a member of the spiritual house of God. We must let the master builder do his work of building his church with us as living stones. Are you willing? Will you let the master builder do his work for you in your life? Do you want to be a living stone? Do you want to live, be a member of this spiritual house that God is building? As Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 21, 22, 
in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Beloved, if you want to be a living stone formed by the hands of God, placed in your place in that spiritual building, bow your heads and pray with me now. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your care. We thank you so much for your manifold blessings, especially the blessing of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you forgive us our sins. We ask humbly, Lord, so we claim the blood of Jesus, that you forgive us. We pray, Lord, and ask humbly, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you will cut away the sin from our life. Help us, Lord, to grow in grace, to strengthen our faith, to be rightly stones, ready for the building. Lord, we thank you so much for this Sabbath day. We pray that you continue to bless us. As we go throughout this day, we may, be, may we bring glory and honor to thy name and what we think and say and do until we can meet again next time. Please walk with us. Send angels to guard and protect us. Be with our friends and loved ones and all the saints in the household of faith. May we, Lord, May we come together in unity that we may finish this work you've given us to do and hasten our Lord's return. We pray humbly in Jesus' name.